Welcome to Out of Rich Darkness. I'm Camille Savage-Kroll. And I'm Elena Chia. We're both professors at the University of Music in Freiburg, Germany. In this podcast, we reimagine the ways in which we learn and make music and explore how it can be part of a holistic, healthy way of being in the world. invited out-of-the-box thinkers and pioneers in the music world to speak to us about their lives and creative processes. In addition to appearances on the podcast this season, our guests participated as coaches in a new course that we designed and taught together at the Hochschule für Musik Freiburg. First of all, I'd like to um, really say a big thank you to Johnny uh, for coming here today. And I'm going to say a few words um, about him first. And Johnny, feel free to correct or or um, complete whatever I say. <laughs> so Johnny Gendelsman is a founding member of Brooklyn Rider and a member of the Silk Road Ensemble. As a member of both of these groundbreaking groups, he has collaborated with such diverse and inspiring artists as Yo-Yo Ma, Martin Hayes, Mark Morris, Anne-Sophie van Otta, Joshua Redman, Suzanne Vega, and many more. As a solo performer, he has recorded the Bach partitas and sonatas for solo violin on his own label, Inner Circle Records, and has even had the audacity to record the Bach cello suites on the violin. <laughs> and to make it seem logical to do so. <laughs> he also produced the music for a recent documentary about Hemingway on PBS. And I thought I would also add a little personal memory because Johnny, you and I met in the Wild Ginger Philharmonic, which was a little chamber orchestra that our mutual friend Dave Goodman founded eons ago. And um, we used to go off to upstate New York and rehearse for a week or 10 days or something. And it was a process that was sort of part hippie commune and part Black Mountain College and <laughs> where rehearsals were sometimes hijacked by wild improv sessions. And there was communal cooking and yoga and poetry writing, Scottish dancing, and probably a lot more. Um, but I remember you leading a sectional with the first violins when we were playing the Tchaikovsky Serenade for strings and um, and you were rehearsing the waltz movement. And I just remember this incredible look of joy on everybody's faces to be playing this waltz melody with you. And they were all kind of dancing with you. Everyone is standing up and it was it was the most um, incredible togetherness I think I've ever heard in uh an orchestral section. So I think just thinking back on that setting where we met, um, it's not surprising to me that you have become the musician that you have. And, um, and yet also it's really fascinating and interesting to me to be able to try to trace the steps from then to now, <laughs> because I haven't really seen you since then. <laughs> so Johnny, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hello, everybody. Um, happy holiday, whatever the holiday is. <laughs> um, Pentecost. Yeah, I, um, the wild ginger time, you know, it was so special for many other people who, who did that, that, who played in that orchestra. It only lasted for about six years total from 1995 to 2001. But I really feel like it has affected a lot of people in the way that they, in the way that they've kind of followed their passions and how their lives, lives un have unfolded. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking about, it's funny you brought up the Tchaikovsky serenade. I was just talking to a friend of mine about Tchaikovsky in general and how, how incredible uh, he is was was melody and was 
with rhythm and just uh, you know has almost a jazzy quality to it. Um, but Wild Ginger was the f uh, the first time that I really uh, that I felt like I knew I understood why music may be a path that I wanted to uh, pursue. Uh, and that was when I was, uh, you know, so, so 95 was when I was 17, but 97 is when I, um, 97, 1997 was when I kind of first, I think there was a change uh, in Wild Ginger. And, and I remember that being the first time. And so if you think, you know, at 19, that's a lot of years from, from age five to 19 to spend not really knowing, you know, uh, but I come <laughs> from really a... interesting to me that you say that, but yeah, go on. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was born in, in Moscow, Russia to, into a family of musicians. My father is a violist. My mother is a pianist. My older sister is a violinist. And it was just a thing that everybody did. And, and so I did it as well. And and it was very, um, you know, it was, it was, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the Russian school. So, you know, that it's very, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly focused and there is very little that can exist outside of that path. Um, right. and, um, when I was a kid, I wanted to play soccer, you know, I wanted to be a soccer player. I, I, I end. <laughs> And I think so, um, and, and the other thing was that, that chamber music was not really a part of that kind of Russian tradition right. at that time. For me, it right. was very much focused on the violin and the violin playing and just getting to be as good as possible on the instrument. And um, so you were, your, your training started in Moscow and yeah. And you were basically in this very traditional Russian school. Yeah. I, and, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then I studied you were... with uh, I studied with Natasha Boyarska, who was um, uh, a fabulous, you know, uh, teacher at the Moscow Conservatory. And when even when my family moved to Israel when I was twelve, I continued studying with only Russian teachers. Mm. Um, I studied with the teachers from the Stalarsky School, and then I, I took lessons with Felix Andreevsky, who taught at um, Royal College of Music in, in London and came to Israel to teach um, a few times a year. And then I, at, at age 15, I, I switched to, at the time, the, you know, the greatest maybe Russian teacher alive, um, Maya Glezarova. Um, and I started from scratch. She said she would only take me uh, if we started from the very beginning. And at age 15, wow. you know, I spent half a year playing open strings um, and uh, at Kreutzer two, uh, and then another half a year playing Tartini Devil's Trill. So I have a particular <laughs> um, feeling about that piece. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe that feeling? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, for a while it was it was just incredible aversion, but now actually I, I'm, I'm I'd like to play it again and see what what happens. But it was, <laughs> but anyway, but but I'm 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 very grateful to 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 Maya um, uh, because she was she was incredible and and uh, she demanded so much from her students the most out of all my teachers. And she made me cry many, many times. Um, and uh, and that's that was okay. Like that's at the time, you know, it was really like, it was tough. But um, then I came to the States and, and I realized just the, the contrast of um, teaching, like that, that kind of school and the type of school where, you know, you could do it like this, or you could do it like that, but the the the, the expectations were so different um, that that was a big shock. Mm. So I came to to the states when I was seventeen. Um, and did you go straight to Curtis from there? I did, yeah. Um, and and uh, I mean, 
So, but it was, you know, I was still on this, you know, kind of path, but right when I came to school uh, in, in Philadelphia, uh, you know, I was living by myself for the first time ever, uh, you know, away from home. And, and it, that was very strange. And um, so my practice habits were just kind of like very, very wonky. Uh, um, and uh, I think at the, po- at the point where I realized that expectations were not the same as what Maya was expecting from me, I think I probably stopped, you know, practicing um, mm-hmm. and just... I, I was very much uh, just enjoying the, the social aspect of, of school. And I think while Ginger came at that time where um, suddenly, you know, I was in a room with, with other people and who were really enjoying, uh, you know, playing their instrument, but also playing the music that they were playing. And, and there was a process of discovery uh, together. Um, and there was there were so many questions asked, um, and yeah. some of them were unanswered, um, and we kept you know searching, and I just found that so inspiring, and I think you know, yeah, that has definitely uh, changed my path. Um, you know, I basically turned around and went the other direction from where I was going. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm wondering, we we chatted just a couple minutes before we started the podcast and, and we were talking about your two kids. I'm yeah. I'm a professor for music education and um and I'm wondering do your kids are your kids learning music? You know, do they play instruments? um when my my son is uh, 11 and my daughter is 7. And when my son was um about 5, he it seemed like he might be interested in, in playing the violin. And so we got him a violin and it was a big mistake. <laughs> he, he actually, he, he, he has a really good ear and he was really struggling with, with um, um, just, you know, the screechiness of, of, of uh, the violin. And he, and, and it was just really not, not for him, you know, so we, we quickly abandoned that. And then he played, he studied piano for about a year and then he chose not to do that. And um, based on my ex- experience of, of, of um, playing the violin and, and, and like picking it up, it wasn't really like a choice. So I couldn't put my kids through that. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, so he hasn't played and uh, since then. Um, mm-hmm. And, and my daughter is, um, she she's interested but we're we're kind of hesitant mm-hmm. about starting mm-hmm. but um what's interesting to me is that my 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 son Julius he fell into becoming a huge soccer uh fan like way more than I ever was you know he just <laughs> loves it uh and he completely fell into it like he knows everything about it he will tell <laughs> you more things about Bayern Munich than than you would want to hear <laughs> you know and I can and, see an Arsenal sticker above your head there yes. well he likes uh he just likes the logos to co- to to color the logos for those who, of you who are watching I'm under my my son's bed it's a loft <laughs> bed and that's my office when he's at school I love it. but um I but I love that kind of um like he's so passionate about it mm-hmm. and it consumes mm-hmm. all of his mm-hmm. life Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, you know, I just love that, that he yeah. found it on his own, that nobody yeah. like made him do it. And, and it's so pure, like his love of yeah. that is so pure. Right. And, you know, maybe when he's a teenager, he might pick up an instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably mm-hmm. was definitely not going to be a classical musician. You know, but, thank God. No, just kidding. Well, no, I mean, just because, because, because we all know that, you know, you have yes. to pick up the instrument early and all that stuff. But uh, if he picks up an instrument and, and he really falls in love with it, then that's amazing. And that would be yeah. a lifelong love. Yeah. You know? Well, I think we should really challenge that idea also that you have to pick up the instrument early because perhaps to be the kind of virtuosic player that that we were told you had to be, perhaps that's true. In fact, it probably is true. But some of the most interesting musicians today that I know who are also doing things like composing 
didn't necessarily have that path. And I think also doing exactly what your son is doing, having the chance to explore things based on what he sparks his imagination and what he's curious about um, gives you a complete, you know, if, if he does at some point um, want to explore music, he'll do it very differently than you did when you were little and how yeah. lucky you were then as a teenager to have a completely different type of experience. That's true. Really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And if he falls in love with something else, you know, he's really into statistics. Like I, <laughs> I know nothing about statistics. It's a very, wow. Wow. My, my, my eyes kind of blur up, but he just, he, <laughs> he is an expert at statistics. So, you know, I, I just, anyway, it's just, a, it's just that thing of, of uh, I've always, you know, all my life I've, I've, kind of struggled with this thing where, where it's like I never chose to do this or I didn't right. feel like I chose to do it when I was a kid and I and there were a lot of like sacrifices in the childhood that there wasn't really a childhood uh per se you know um and um I just don't want that for my kids yeah yeah you know um, what, what you were saying about wild ginger um I didn't realize to what an extent that had influenced you. And I was wondering about that, of course, because it, to me, it's not, it seems like Wild Ginger was kind of the um, the hotbed of a lot of ideas that um, and kind of a, a place for for ideas to grow, which would ordinarily, it's certainly in our conservatory environments, just had no place. And um, so I'm and it seemed to me back then that we were all like probably most of us came from this kind of upbringing where we didn't really have a childhood and we also didn't really have a choice about what we were going to play and how it was going to be done and wild ginger felt to me at the time like um a way to relive our childhoods <laughs> or to live our childhoods <laughs> yes. for the first time <laughs> and certainly i think a lot of what we did was was pretty wacky um but it was that was that the case for you and and did it give you an opportunity to kind of own music for yourself in a different way yeah i think it just this idea that um you know there isn't some uh higher being that knows everything there is to know about how to play mozart or beethoven and they will tell you and then you will do it and then you'll be perfect you know just <laughs> like just that, um, just kind of, you know, taking that idea and, and blowing it up and just saying, hey, you know, there's there's so many questions and there's so many different way to, ways to interpret the score. Um, and what is the right way? You know, I mean, that's, and because it's not like, um, what I liked was that it's uh, also, um, uh, is that it was very, earnest like it, it wasn't trying to be just different or trying to find wacky things you know what about if we do this crazy thing mm -hmm. like I, I think ideas came from you know the like a, a deep place of curiosity and inquiry about what's in there you know and just a lot like I think and yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, so many, I, I'm still in touch with, you know, friends who played in that orchestra. And, and when we chat about it, it's just, it's kind of bittersweet that, you know, our our favorite moments of, play, some of our favorite moments playing music happened 25 years ago. Mm. <laughs> you know, oh, it's, uh, yeah. Um, I it can left, relate. yeah, it left that kind of um, uh, imprint on our lives oh. but yeah. um you know um what, what was great about it also was that once you know it's like uh, in the main in the matrix you know the blue pill and the red pill if you take the blue <laughs> pill you can't go back you see you know you see it um uh, as it is and 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 then you 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 know we i think many people who played in our orchestra wanted some kind of life of of inquiry and questions um more than just being told what to do um and in in so in my case it it turned into um eventually turned into uh, forming a string quartet with mm -hmm. um three other musicians who were friends who all 
played in Wild Ginger, actually. Right, right. Um, and and we're friends, and and you know we we had um, there was a lot of things that we shared in common. You know, things that we liked uh, about music, a way a way to play, musicians that we admired. Um, so it was a great kind of base of from where to start. Um, yeah. And we had, and, and we already had many, many experiences playing together in different, you know, situations. So we, we played in Wild Ginger, then Colin and Eric Jacobson formed an orchestra called The Knights, which um, in some aspects was similar to Wild Ginger. Was that yeah, before you guys formed Brooklyn Rider? Yeah. Oh, okay. It was, yeah. I think I think the Knights formed maybe in two thousand two or two thousand three. Oh, okay. Uh, we also all played in the Silk Road Ensemble, um, mm-hmm. and so we also had you know ex- like exposure to um, music from different cultures and travel and 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 playing in very different situations. You know, in the concert hall, in a in a gallery, um, in a you know cafe I mean I don't know we've we did a lot of we did a lot of things so um it it just seemed natural that we would take it um and kind of go further and explore what what can we do in a string quartet yeah and wow what can you do in a string quartet it's yeah so over the last few days I've been listening to a lot of your your recordings Brooklyn Riders recordings and um and one of the things that totally strikes me is that you can listen to five different albums that you guys have made, and I don't even feel like I'm listening to the same group um, because oh, it, it just it never gets boring, and it's so it's so completely different from one album to the next. It's almost like you reinvent yourselves or you reinvent what you're doing, and yet you do have this quartet sound, which is recognizable, and it's. Um, and it's incredibly tight what uh, what you're what you do whether whether you're playing beethoven or irish fiddle music <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, well what, thank yeah. you we 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 kind of thought that um um you know a lot of groups uh, i think when they when they form um they kind of you know you, you think about like a path that you might go into like we're going to be the the group that plays, you know, on period instruments, uh, you know, that, or we're going to be a, a group that just plays like some really hardcore new music and we do it super well. Um, and we actually, we actually wanted to do all of that. Like we, our thing is that we don't, we didn't want to um, narrow, to look mm-hmm. at, at a string quartet as a, as a kind of a, a narrow funnel. We wanted to, to look and see what are the, all the things that a string quartet can can do, and and there are so many things. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like you know, and 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 we we also wanted to kind of follow our our individual uh, passions and and explore, um, you know, and see if we can create projects around them. You know, just see what would happen. So, for example, you mentioned uh, Irish fiddle. Um, Martin Hayes uh, was a hero of Collins. I remember from Wild Ginger. I remember exactly. listening to one of his albums on basically nonstop with with Colin. <laughs> right, it's that kind of it. It has that kind of magical quality. Mm-hmm. His playing and you know it was it was just that that friendship with Martin and 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 whatever followed uh, just developed out of the fact that we just really admired him and then went to his concerts and then just kind of said hey. Martin, what do you think about, you know, maybe doing something together? And we got together in a hotel room somewhere in Connecticut and just <laughs> sat around two double bats, uh, you know, and just played, tried to play something together or, you know, tried to learn something by ear and then tried to create something. And, and you know, we weren't very good, but, but there was a, like, there was a, there was a kernel of something that felt like, wow, you know, we could build up, we can build on this. And there was like a, there was like a, 
feeling of possibility. And, you know, it turned out into uh, um, like now a decade long friendship um, and a ton of learning um, about each other. Um, yeah. And, and some concerts, you know, which is good because one has to pay rent. Um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful um, album. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, I love it. And also interesting to me that you say that you weren't any good when you started, um, which I think is. I mean, so we cool. didn't know anything about Irish music. You know, it's right, like what exactly. what do we know? We're, we're coming from a completely different um, tradition, and yeah. you know, the Irish music is an oral tradition, so you you learn by ear. Mm -hmm. um, and we and we did end up. Um, so our project is kind of like a, you know, like bridging the two worlds. We did commission people to write arrangements for us, but we tried to, we, we did learn the tunes by ear and we tried to kind of get to the place where it feels like what we're doing is not written down, even though it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which is, which is a really nice thing when you then go back to, you know, like, Beethoven or, or Brahms and, and you see something or Bach, you know, and you see like a thing that looks like a written out improvisation. Um, what does that mean? You know, if, if like, if um, I feel like when I was a kid and somebody told me about just like the opening of the G minor sonata, you know, well, this is a written out improvisation. I have no idea what that means. I have nothing to relate it to, mm, you know, right. um, because I've never been in a situation where I've improvised, where I went from one place to another without knowing how I got there, you know? <laughs> I always knew how I got there. So so just that, uh, so, but being in a situation where really you're like, okay, you know, we're gonna start on G and then we're gonna go to D and somehow we're gonna get there. Like just that it's like super simple concept, but just being in that, kind of space of, of doing that, then I can go back and, and look at written out improvisation and classical music and say, oh yeah, I know how that feels. I, you know, I don't know how, I'm not sure that I know how to do it, but I remember how that felt like physically and what my brain was doing. And I can kind of try and get closer to it. Yeah, that was actually one of my main questions, you know, how, what is, uh, how do you approach music that's not written and how do you approach music or, or music that is written, but it's basically from this oral tradition and how do you approach different ethnic musics and, and then going back to Beethoven and Bach and, um, because to me, like when I listen to you playing the Bach violin sonatas and partitas or the cello suites, um, it, I I definitely hear um, your your um, influence from all different kinds of styles, and I I hear this really dance like quality. So it's really great to hear you talk about um, about what it means to play something as if it's improvised, and I think it's such a good point that you have to have that experience of improvising in order to know what it feels like to to play something that seems improvised right yeah well and and and, and in particular like in in the case of you know there's so many different ways people improvise um in the case of irish music i mean you know it's a tune and and you just repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it you repeat mm -hmm. the a section and you repeat the b section sometimes there's a c section and you and and but it's like being able to to say the same thing but slightly different and just mm -hmm. like in the moment create these little tiny little moments of that 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 shift you know and it, and it's you know and there's a so there's like martin can play the same tune you know five times and it will it will and it will be very close to the like the tune yeah. but it will never sound the same and it's like mm. there's there's um there's a lot of improvisation with the left hand with ornamentation but there's actually also a ton of improvisation with the right hand mm. uh was was um 
with different articulation, different types of slurring, or or sometimes you know doubling up on, on or even tripling up on a note, and that's that's what I've that's kind of what I've been working on in the cello suites. I hear um, that. I totally hear that. And you know what? I your um the jig of um, the fourth, the fourth suite. Which one? The, the fourth. The what? <laughs> the fourth. No, it wasn't the fourth suite. It wasn't the fourth suite. I I but I think it was the third suite. Okay. Um, yeah, I played it for a student of mine to show him, um, this is what it sounds like when it's really danced. <laughs> oh, what it, what was the, was it, was he horrified? <laughs> no, he loved it. <laughs> Johnny. Some people, some people might be horrified. I mean, you know, it's not, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, with the, it's also, I mean, the cello suites are, are so interesting because, you know, there's no, uh, as you know, uh, there's no original manuscript, right? There's this, all yeah. these different versions with different, you know, slurrings. And I was, I was trying to go, um, I looked at, I looked at, I think, uh, well, a few of them. And I tried to learn the, like the Anna Magdalena version and the slur, I don't know if, how many cellists are on this call. Are there? Some. Uh, let me see. There's at least a couple. Okay, so if you looked at that, you know that the slurs in Anna Magdalena are very different than in 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 um, in other editions, where other editions make it very symmetrical. If you go, if you know, if half a bar goes one way, the other half a bar goes exactly the same way. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in Anna Magdalena, there's a lot of variation. Um, mm -hmm. There and and so and like one of my heroes is is somebody like I've admired for many years is is Honor Bildsma, right? And 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 yeah. Vera, that's and and uh, he spent a lifetime looking at those scores and and yeah. trying to like you know pull out the meaning and um, when I played a little bit of it for him he was horrified i think a little bit because because <laughs> so I, that's why i have experience playing it for cellists and them being horrified <laughs> but it's it's i think it was because um it, you know so honor's thing was the honor magdalena was like that's um the variation right in it was very much intentional and it creates a beautiful ace asymmetrical feeling right. for for the sweets and and i agree with that but i but when i was learning them i i i thought well, what if i just try and learn them uh I, I i wanted to get to a place where i could try and make up the right hand ornamentation on the spot the way martin does in a mm, in a oh, wow. in a in a suite of you know dances Irish dances mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. uh, and I'm I'm you know I'm not nowhere close to like the level of mas mastery that somebody who does it for a, you know for a lifetime gets to but it is a very interesting experience because um, it kind of throws out the idea. Like when I was studying the sonatas and partitas, I went and I looked at the manuscript and I learned the slurs and I tried to do them as exact as possible. And that was a really great experience. And I think it's very important to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then with the cello suites, I went the opposite direction. And it's a very different experience of, of playing because there's yeah. like a sense of, <laughs> there's an inherent sense of risk because right. you I know literally you don't know <laughs> what is going to happen. And if you might, you might try something and it really doesn't work, you know, in right. the moment. Or you and might then freeze you're not up. improvising, actually. And right. you have to play the notes. <laughs> right, right. So, um, but anyway, it's been a learning, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been a learning process. And, and, and one day yeah. I think we'll continue. And now I'm, I'm actually going to play the Sonatas and Partitas for the first time in, four years all together wow. in about a month. And I'm wow. yeah. looking forward just to, to going back to that and seeing how it all feels now that 
I had this other experience of yeah. working on the suites. Mm -hmm. You know, um, speaking of having um, your, you know, experimenting with, with this improvisational style of bowing, um, you had this incredibly strict Russian training, upbringing, and so on. And then you came to all this other stuff where you are doing, you're playing in every possible genre of music. Um, if, if you could go back and change your education um, so that it would make sense for what you do today, what would that look like? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think <laughs> I spent about a decade playing like choking up on the bow so high that it was almost in the middle. Now that I look at some videos and look how, what was I thinking? You know, like I, <laughs> I spent a long time doing that. Um, I don't know. I was searching for something, um, but I, and I think my teachers, all of my teachers would have been totally horrified if they saw that, <laughs> particularly Maya, because she, like, she was, like she, you know, her students had the, quintessential Russian bow arm, which is like a thing of beauty. And I went and I totally messed it up. Um, and, um, but, and I also, you know, and I'm not sure about do-overs, you know, because I do feel like one thing leads to the next and then you end up, you know, like, but I think it does. But, I mean, I think the question is also though, how can institutions support the kind yeah. of musician that you are now? What kind of, well, I think, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, creating um, a lot of places where um, questions can be asked and not necessarily answered. Yeah. Um, I just, um, I think I think I really like I really really when, when I got so expectations at at the school that I went to in the states in terms of like individual practice were I would say considerably lower, but um, there was a lot of uh, very like you know um, you can't do this you can't do that you can't do this you're you know I had a teacher say that I was you know, why do you always have to bark up the wrong tree when you're learning Bach, you know? I mean, it was only, be uh, and it was like, I was just looking for, I was looking and, you know, mm. maybe I was looking in the wrong direction, but I was still looking. Mm. Um, so I think, I, I would say that um, I would have loved to to learn some basics of, of improvisation when I was in school, you know, feel feel better about um, about that, uh, playing off the page, mm -hmm. um, and would have been nice to learn some basic skills of um, composition and arranging. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, some some of those things were offered, and I just, in my rebellious <laughs> thing, I was like, you know, I'm not doing anything, you guys. <laughs> are telling me I have to do you know I never actually graduated I don't even have a diploma um, <laughs> I think I think I didn't get a diploma because I probably owe like 50 bucks to the library <laughs> that'll do it hey, that students pay your library fines yes. very American <laughs> yeah that's fine <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, they're probably kicking themselves that they didn't give you a diploma now. <laughs> I don't think so. I think they're fine. Um, but, um, but I did, you know, I mean, the school is really like, the best things about school were, there were some teachers that were, I felt like I was learning a ton from, and then they were not like, necessarily the, the, you know, the, like, instrument yeah. instruction, but other uh, our conductor, who was, you know, like was very, very, very scary man named Otto Werner Müller. But <laughs> had the was same a, one. <laughs> yeah, but I learned a ton from him. Um, but uh, the community, you know, the community of of uh, 
other students mm -hmm. and and finding people that you know you connect with and then end up being friends with for mm -hmm. for decades mm -hmm. you know that's, that's so really, valuable that's yeah. the place to do that that's a great place to do not the only place but yeah yeah, yeah. I would love to ask you about another one of your recent albums. Um, I listened to Healing Modes today, and um, it was stunning and shattering. I was very touched by it, and um, and not just by how you played, but um, but also by the the idea that I felt came through. Um, in that album, which was, I mean, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, all the things that string quartets can do. Um, and one of those things that, that you did in this album was you created space or even a platform for voices that aren't heard enough in our, um, in our classical music world. Um, and I'm wondering how, intentional was that I maybe have to say a little bit more about it but you took Beethoven's opus 132 and interspersed it with um, works from composers of today um, like Caroline Shaw who's one of my current absolute favorite composers and I'm very determined to get on this podcast as well um, but I noticed also I couldn't help but notice that all of these composers um, also happened to be female and from varying cultural backgrounds. And I'm wondering if Sorry, that... can you repeat that last part? Because it oh, froze yeah, for it a froze. Second. I noticed it, it that said, too. All those composers had okay. backgrounds. Yes, okay. I couldn't I couldn't help true. notice <laughs> that they were that they were not just um, composers from today, but female composers oh, from mm -hmm. from varying cultural backgrounds. And um, and I felt like that was a very intentional step. Um, maybe even towards a richer and more healthy, since to pick up that, that word, um, musical life. Was that intentional? I mean, you know, yes and no, I would say. Um, um, we, as a, as a string quartet and, and in, in my own projects, you know, and, and with Silk Road, like we, we commission a ton of new work uh, because that's just a great thing that that that's a great aspect of our lives you know to be able to work with living composers and uh and it has brought um a ton of joy and and a lot of learning for us um and for that project we commissioned five composers um and uh, and we asked each one to just think about healing which is of course the you know the the theme that goes through Opus 132, right. but healing as it you know as it. What does healing mean to them? You know, and and it was very it was very interesting. Um, we got very different um, responses to to healing. Um, some were some were very personal, like mm -hmm. stories of of composers dealing with with illnesses. And, and the process of, of, of doing that. And some were, you know, dealt with like societal healing, um, yeah. like the US-Mexico uh, border crisis, um, which was addressed in Matana Roberts' yeah. piece, um, yeah. Borderlands. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to amplify all voices, you know? uh there's so many uh there's so many incredible composers out there it's it's uh we we live in a great time for for composition and yeah. for writing and there's no reason why um all of those voices can't be heard um yes more yeah you know yeah. Well, thank you for, for amplifying those voices. I, I'm also always shocked when I see concert programming at how little space those voices are given, those voices of today that deal with issues that, that we are grappling with. And, um, and I, was, I was very moved by 
by that album and, and also the juxtaposition, um, which helps me to understand and hear Beethoven's music differently, which is the exactly. wonderful thing about it. Um, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, it really, you know, and that's like one of the great things about working with living composers is that um, you, you know, you can have discussions that you might have wished to have with Beethoven, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, about meaning and what's, you know, what does this thing mean in the score? And, it's, and some scores are really open and some scores are incredibly um, precise. And yet <laughs> there's a whole other 100% universe uh, that's not, there's, that's impossible to notate. Mm -hmm. That's like in conversation right. or yeah. in, in the experience of, of, you know, first learning and then performing um, a piece. And then you can get to to the true meaning, you know. And and mm -hmm. and when we when we have that, when we can go back to, and kind of apply the lessons learned to Beethoven, and and look yeah. at a score, which you know, thousands and millions of people have heard and 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 know. And but we can look at it and approach it, uh, kind of like as a piece as a as a a new piece of music that was written but it was written by beethoven some mm -hmm. hundred years ago mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. instead of like yeah absolutely the classic that you like there's a way to do it and if you just do it that way yeah you got absolutely. it absolutely <laughs> yeah and then it's meaningless <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I guess... you know th there's a life to be had i guess doing that as well and that's fine you know but <laughs> to each his own yeah i was just having a fun little fantasy picturing you guys in i don't know 30 years <laughs> giving a master class about these pieces and saying this is how it has to be played <laughs> yeah. because this is what the composer told us <laughs> totally yeah that totally can happen who knows <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll be old republican white republican <laughs> No, that's probably not going to happen. That's probably not going to happen. But, but uh, you know, I know things do cha change. I mean, we we play standing and and are 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 kind of yes. You know, we're putting money on on how long we can go <laughs> before we have to sit down. That's great. Oh well, I love to. I, I that this also struck me. I noticed that you that you play standing, and and that also really gives a different energy to the music. Um, but you also mentioned that you've played in all kinds of different places, not mm -hmm. just concert halls. Um, you mentioned galleries and cafes, and another song I was even really struck by this week um, was Baderama, which you mm -hmm. um, which you recorded with um, the amazing Magos Herrera. And um, which is also just hauntingly beautiful. I, it is now my favorite version of that song. I lived in Mexico as a while for a kid, so I know that song already. But um, this song also speaks of a space where people from all walks of life can come together and dream and discuss and create and, um, and a place to make art that really infects other people. Um, and it's not passive, which is which is very much um, the sense that I get when when I when I listen to your music. I can imagine if I was in one of these locations, I would feel um, I would feel animated to respond. And um, and this is one of the things I'm I'm wondering about, especially now as we're coming out of this pandemic. Do you have ideas about what kind of? I mean, we've had everything on pause now. But what kind of formats, when you think into the future of, of music formats, but maybe also places and, and maybe also ways of, of thinking about music that is not just in a concert hall, but that is in the middle of our lives and in the middle of the things that we struggle with, um, what, what could those kinds of spaces be? I don't know if you, if you as a quartet or yourself personally have thought about this. That's so hard. Um, that's such a hard question. Um, I, I mean, personally, the biggest takeaway is that live music is, is there really, it really cannot be, um, the feeling of being at a concert, you know, whether it's 
concert hall or a bar or a gallery, but just like being in the same space with a musician creating music on the spot is, um, it's like a, it's a visceral feeling. It's, it's, uh, I've, I've watched, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone watched some stream live streams and, and some were better than others. Um, but I think I only once did I feel like actually moved, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I don't know. I, I, I attribute it not to the quality of performances, which is, you know, wonderful mm-hmm. or as good as it can be considering all the difficult circumstances of how people are creating those recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just being in the room together with people is, 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 it's going to, it, I think it's going once it comes back, it, it's going to feel really special. It might take a, a while to get used to that feeling because we also have been doing it for a year and a half and I'm I'm playing the cello suites three times this week and I'm kind of like I don't even know how to feel about it honestly yeah um yeah wow I mean I'm excited but I'm also I don't know if I remember what you know it's just gonna yeah I don't know what to say about it um Yeah, I can. And you know, and I think I think we, I, I, I do feel like, in our community, also, you know, we we might take things for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, we go from concert to concert. We often take the audience for granted. Yes. You know, or look mm-hmm. down at the audience, like, well, I'm I'm here and I'm playing the thing, and you know, but it's a really like, um, even with an audience of one. You know, it's like a, it's really a symbiotic relationship. And yeah. You cannot like create magic without uh, an active participation of the audience. Right. I mean, like active, Absolutely. you know, like being present yes. and listening. Yeah. So I'm hoping that when things go back that um, both parties, right? Mm-hmm. The audiences and, and the musicians have like a renewed appreciation of, of like being in it together and just, um yeah 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 you know and creating creating like memorable moments is probably the more important than um you know nailing that passage on the fourth Mm -hmm. page of the tchaikovsky concerto yeah just Yes. Gonna go ahead and guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, and even the even the risk you talk about risk in in the beginning. Even the the fact that there is that risk, there is that chance for something that is not perfect, is almost something that I hope for when I visit a live concert. I want there to be some sort of imperfection, which actually makes it real and beautiful. And um, yeah, I I've been thinking a lot about how we as we are able to have more intimacy in concert spaces, how we can actively remove the distance that a lot of times I think we have in our minds um, as performers, but, but how can we, how can we connect not just in, in a space, but, um, but also in, in ways of, of thinking about the world with, with people in our concert settings. Yeah. I'll be, I I wish. (laughs) I would I love to hear when we're co- doing your coaching. Love to just oh, just next week I mean, just catch up on on how your uh, your performances went this week. Sorry. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, uh, I know. I was just I, but you know, it's curious. Like I was I was talking to a, a presenter um, in the states, like a chamber music series presenter, and she told me that she did, at the end of this this season she did a, a survey of her audience of how they felt about digital performance. And she got an 85% response that said they liked it as much or preferred it to a live performance. Wow. And I think, you know, there's something, there's something there. Um, I'm trying to think like, well, what is the, you know, what, what is the, what could be those things that, that make it so, you know, and Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not leaving your house, yeah. not putting your pants on, you yep. know, <laughs> yes. having a glass of wine, yeah. 
in your yeah. hand um, is nice, you know. And then also, a lot of digital performance have performances have come with conversations with the artists mm -hmm. either before That's or true. after, um, which is always you know interesting and and I think people really yeah. appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, so I think that is like a thing for presenters to 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 go deeper into and, and figure out those things and, and see if, mm -hmm. you know, if there are ways to create an atmosphere that feels that way, that doesn't feel mm. stifling when you go into the concert hall, but feels mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like a happening that, that is really exciting and the people can be really themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then bring, find a way to, to like, you know, bridge, bridge that gap between the audience and performers by making it more, personal yeah. Uh, yeah so you know those are I mean I know that it's like in a in a in a room you know in a gallery space it's that's easier to do than in a concert hall with 3,000 mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. but right anyway something to think about definitely and I this there's so many things that we could go on talking about and I would love to <laughs> to do that but we're running out of time here um yeah. and um and we're gonna very very fortunately see you next week with our students, not in the podcast, but um, with our student projects. And um, we're looking forward to that. And maybe if I could just ask you one more question. Um, sure. This is, it's kind of um, selfish motivation, but um, <laughs> we've just been through this pandemic. And um, I know that in my experience, there was a part of me that was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to play. <laughs> um, for At least for a little bit. <laughs> um, and then there was also the opportunity to do things that I never have time to do and, um, and mm -hmm. new creative things. Is there anything, was there anything of that for you in this pandemic, like any bright side or anything um, that you started doing that you have never been able to do before? Uh, sure. I mean, I went through uh, a bunch of periods of not picking up, like not even opening my case for months uh, in the last few, you know, in the la since last March. Um, I went through, you know, I did the sourdough baking and the ukulele <laughs> learning, and <laughs> luckily I'm on the on the other side of that now. <laughs> But. Um, But, But it was fun. Hear it was you play fun. the ukulele next week. Oh God, no. <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, a, a blessing has been playing. You know, being just being with my kids, my family. Like I, I, I spend a lot of time on the road. I, uh, I miss uh, a lot of little things and some big things. And so it was just, you know, that that was nice. And and it's kind of feeling a sense of trepidation uh about things going back to the way they were and how that's mm -hmm. gonna feel um mm -hmm. but i hear you yeah yeah uh, i i mean i, I started the you know, i started a new commissioning project um during the pandemic for works for violence solo solo mm -hmm. violence um and we're making some plans with brooklyn writer for another you know for the next kind of big project um so yeah. there's been a lot of planning a lot of email a lot of zoom meetings i do hope that zoom meetings yeah. uh continue but not always um like I know what you we mean. used to be we used to be able to discuss some things over the phone it now <laughs> now it feels like should we get out of zoom <laughs> you know it's like you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's really uh i mean anyway but yeah so it's you know it's it's been a mixed it's been a mixed year uh, mm -hmm. but yeah. but there, I, there's some exciting things you know to to come out of it for sure mm -hmm. okay yeah mm -hmm. that's great well johnny thank you so so much thank, thank you. you thank you camille and Lainey yeah. and everyone who attended Thank you for listening to Out of Rich Darkness. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take the time to leave us a review so that more people can find us.
You can help us grow our community of positive change by engaging with us. What's on your mind? Who should we talk to next? We'd love to hear from you on social media.